Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. Sometimes there's things in the world that do not make any sense, like the loss of a child. My heart feels heavy for all the parents that are living without their precious babies. My next guest, Kyla, had 30 days with her precious son. His name is Leo. Leo had a short life on this earth, but his legacy will live on and he will forever be remembered taking up space in so many hearts. In his memory, Kyla, along with other moms who are brought together through the tragedy of child loss, recognized that grief support for men and male identifying partners was very limited. They came together to put on the Lionheart Golf Tournament, where funds raised will go towards providing better access to ongoing mental health resources for fathers who are grieving the loss of their children. First, I'm so deeply sorry for your loss, and I wish we were meeting on different circumstances, and I truly appreciate you being here to share your story today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So can you take us back to the beginning? What did your journey into motherhood look like? Yeah, well, it was... I got pregnant in the pandemic. (laughs) So it was, that was already really a a scary time because you're wondering what on earth is happening in this world. And here I am bringing life into it. And so um, it was scary, but it was also exciting because it gave us something to look forward to in, in the chaos. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, it brought a bit of a light a scary time. Mm-hmm. So were, was the pregnancy something that was planned or did it just kind of happen? Was it a surprise? Well, I, um, I was with my partner, Stefan, we'd been together for, <clears throat> I guess it was over a year. And we were talking that we knew that we wanted to have children. And um, we were in our late thirties. So we kind of were like, well, we better kind of get to this, you know, feeling the time crunch a little bit. And we didn't know how, if it would take a while or what would happen. And luckily we got pregnant on our kind of first try. It just seemed, I was like, well, that was way too easy. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> pretty lucky to be honest with you. And so um, we were, felt very, very blessed to have that happen so easily for us on the first time. So then what did the, the pregnancy look like? Were things kind of progressing normally or? um... Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was having a, I guess you'd call a normal pregnancy. I mean, of course, just like anyone in a pregnancy, you're constantly nervous about, you know, I remember my doctor saying to me one in four pregnancies end, you know, miscarriage. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, that's a huge number. And, but just thinking, I just need to get to 12 weeks, right? That 12 week mark. And, um, it, it, it seemed normal. I was nauseous, um, for about seven weeks, which was no fun, but I, it was almost a reassurance that I was still pregnant. 
So I was almost like, okay, okay, I'll take this. <laughs> I'm still pregnant. And yeah, it was all progressing pretty normally and seemed like an average pregnancy. And finally, when I kind of um, dropped the guard thinking, okay, I, th- I think we're good. We're out of the clear. And I was 29 and a half weeks pregnant. I went to see my midwife on the Friday and everything was fine. Nothing to be alarmed at. And then two days later, I went into unexpected preterm labor. Without this day, I don't have any real explanation of why I went into preterm labor. So that's something that will always sit with me, right? (laughs) Like what on earth started this without any answers? But basically the doctor just said it was, just a very unlucky case. Mm. But, yes. um, we went to the hospital, my midwife, once we realized I was in labor, it wasn't just like Braxton Hicks or just cramping of some sort when we realized it was labor and they kept saying it could stop. It could stop. I remember thinking it'll stop. This will stop. And they gave me a shot of morphine and they said, this could stop it. And then they gave me a steroid just in case the baby was born for his lungs, or it could also stop it, but wasn't stopping. So. And where were you when you kind of went into this preterm labor? Yeah, well, I was at home and it was, um, it started really late at night. (laughs) I just, I couldn't get comfortable. And it just kept going on and on. And I said to Stefan, I was like, I just can't get comfortable and I'm cramping. And I remember him saying, call the, call your midwife, call your midwife. And I remember feeling so bad because it was three, four in the morning. I thought, no, I don't want to wake her up. <laughs> and say, this is what they're for though. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was about six o'clock in the morning when I finally could almost time the contractions and I was like, okay, good. So called her up and she told me to meet her immediately at the Foothills hospital. And I remember being really nervous to go there because there was a COVID outbreak in that hospital. And I thought, no, I'm not going to a hospital. But it had uh, the best NICU for that early of a birth. Oh, so. Okay. (laughs) I know. I think that's got to be really hard too. Like the not having, like, you know, you won't ever get the answers. Like it just just that happens and there's nothing that, you know, anybody really has done to induce it or or make it happen, but just not having that, the answers to that, I know has got to be really difficult. And, and did you um, ever blame yourself or put any of that on you? Or do you know, like that has nothing to do with anything that you have done? I mean, logically, I know there's nothing I did. I was cautious about what I was eating and I was making sure I was exercising. I was taking my vitamins. I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't working. I was at home, but I mean, as a human, you just, it's, you just blame yourself. Like Mm -hmm. the feeling of like my body failed him. Right. So it's hard. I have to talk myself like that all the time going back there. I, yeah, I know like, yeah, as the one who carries the baby that 
when things don't go as expected or as planned, then that could be like a deep, dark spiral to get into. And yeah, having to talk yourself out of that and realize, you know, there, it was not anything that you did, or maybe that you won't get an explanation for it. So that's gotta be tough. And, and through the whole COVID being pregnant in COVID and then with everything, all of the chaos in the world that's happening and all of the unknown. Um, yeah, just such a, such a chaotic time in the world. So you go into the foothills and you meet your midwife. They're trying to stop the contractions. So how do things progress from there? Yeah, they, she then, because I was so early, well, 29 and a half weeks, I, she no longer could, to, could take care of me. It had to be an obstetrician. And um, so the, I met with the obstetrician and he checked and I, I think I was like one or two centimeters dilated. And then they brought in the NICU team to come talk to me. And I remember thinking, and that's when I broke down. <laughs> said um, then it gets real right like this baby is coming and you're just scared because it's see, it's so early right and um you just know that it's going to set them up for probably challenges throughout their life but I remember thinking that's okay like as you know I just want them healthy and I remember asking the doctor, what's his chance of survival? And he said, a, a baby at this gestation has a 90% chance of survival. And I remember thinking, fantastic. That's a good number. I like that number. And he said, you know, preteen babies, you know, they can have some struggle with, um, you know, ADHD, you know, like these um, sensitivities, things like that. And I remember thinking, I don't care. That's totally okay. Like I, I work with special needs children. I went preschools, I got this, you know, and that's totally awesome. 90% were great. And, um, and then it just, it just progressed really quickly. And I think within, I got there at 10 AM and by five 30, they're rushing me to <laughs> the delivery room. And I think I, I pushed for seven minutes and he came out and he was, he was born healthy and at a really good weight. He was three pounds, three ounces. So, you know, for a baby that size, he was good size, good weight, and he was healthy and, um, happened very fast, <laughs> very quickly. And my family didn't even know I was in the hospital and they couldn't even come there because of COVID either. Oh. Stefan with me, luckily. And yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. It was um, really hard to believe it happened. So while, while you were in there and going through this, did, did your family have any idea or it just happened so fast that you just were there and ended up, you know, having your son and um, like the rest of the world didn't even know about it? Yeah. Well, at first we didn't want to tell them because we didn't want to scare them because we just thought it was going to stop and we we're going to go home. And then once we realized, okay, this isn't stopping. Um, I told Stefan to text them, and let them know. 
and unfortunately he sent them a text and then things just started to spiral out of control and they had a hundred questions they were trying to get from him, but he wasn't able to answer. So the panic was happening on their end and all of a sudden I'm being wheeled into the delivery room and then they were just waiting on the other end thinking what on earth and now they can't get a hold of any of us. And their next text was Stefan sending them a picture. <laughs> wow. And I'm sure, were they in the same city? No, they were no? in okay. Hopes, and I was in Calgary. So, and the thing is with COVID, they couldn't even come. So my parents actually ended up driving and they sat outside the hospital. <laughs> Sorry, I just need a minute to collect myself. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just the COVID really um, is another part of it because it robbed us of our experience because that was their firstborn grandchild. They couldn't be there, right? Yes, I know I've heard countless stories of people who feel the same that, that, you know, it took away some of the, the memories and the first and the cuddles and, and all of the things that everybody is so looking forward to. And it's just heartbreaking that it, that was happening at the time, you know, when people are going through some of the most joyful times of their life, bringing in a child to the, to the, to the world. And then when some people are going through the most tragic times of their life and they're not able to be surrounded by the people who love and care about them and who would do anything for them, I feel that must have just amplified things to be there and be alone kind of going through it. So yeah. when, when he came and he was three, three pounds, three ounces and doing healthy for, you know, a baby that early, um, were you able to, um, see him right away or did he go straight to the NICU or how did things kind of unfold that way? Yeah. Well, right after he was born, they actually laid him on me for, I can't remember what the time I was allowed so much time with him on me and, um, which I'm really thankful for now. And then, yeah, they, they have um, all of the delivery nurses and doctors around me. And then in the corner, a handful of NICU nurses and doctors. And so then they take them and they put them right away over there. And the, <laughs> they start working on right away and getting them in the incubator. And then they take them off to the NICU. And um, yeah. And then um, Stefan was able to go in the NICU while they kind of finished with me. <laughs> and um, yeah, he got to go in the NICU. And then once kind of everything got straightened out with me and I was able to, um, a nurse wheeled me into the NICU where I got to go see him, yeah, right away. And then they allowed me to stay in the, well, I mean, I had to stay in the hospital because they were testing me for, like they didn't know if it was, um, like preeclampsia or, you know, at that point they didn't know. So they're watching me very closely for my blood pressure and stuff like that. And 
So I, was, I stayed in the Foothills Hospital for, I believe it was two nights, which was nice because I could then go down to the NICU as much or as little as I wanted to see him. Right. Okay. So you stayed in, um, was your partner also allowed to stay at the hospital or did he have to come and go? He went home every night and then came back the next morning. Yeah. So, yeah. So then it was just me and, um, yeah. So that was, you know, it felt really, um, isolating too. (laughs) It's not how you dream your experience with your newborn baby. Mm -hmm. And you were allowed two days to stay Mm -hmm. there. Then Mm -hmm. what happened after those two days? Then you have to go home. And I remember leaving and leaving the hospital without my baby. I just bawling. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, all, there's no longer a baby in your belly, right? And, and you're leaving the hospital without a baby. And you're leaving him with people to take care of him. And you're terrified. And, you know, you have no idea what could go wrong or everything's okay. And I knew he was in like a critical state for about 72 hours. So I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, like I don't want to get the phone call. And yeah, it's very overwhelming. Yeah. And then you're just home and you can come and visit as much as you want. Um, And you can call and they'll give you very detailed updates as much as you want. And they're fantastic about that. Like they're very, it was you know, reassuring, but you do have to go home and take care of yourself too, right? Like you just gave birth. And so it's a fine line between wanting to be there for your baby, but also needing to take care of yourself and get mentally and emotionally prepared for now, what I thought would be up to an eight week NICU stay. Right. So when you left, like things were relatively, he was in critical care, but Yeah, they just kind of had to get him out of that window, right? Just to 72 hours. But um, everything was fine at that point. They're watching him obviously very carefully. And then, yeah, we just, over the next few weeks, just came in every single day and spent the day with him and then would go home at night. Hmm. And at this point, was your family allowed in or was it only the two of you? Because of COVID, only the two of us. So that was also very hard because with, if it wasn't COVID, my sister and my brother-in-law, my mom and my dad, they all could have, you're allowed a handful of people, I believe, to be on your team to come in and, and be with him. So because of COVID, they all got robbed of that experience. And then all the pressure was on just the two of us to be there as much as possible, where we could have got maybe a bit more of a break with less guilt involved for not being there. If like my mom could have sat with him or my sister. Yes, absolutely. That was another tough world as well though. And they got robbed of that experience with their nephew and grandson. Mm-hmm. So when did, when did you find out that um, things were um, not progressing um, with his health? Well, actually it was, um, he was doing really, really well. And 
the nurses were calling him like the rock star of the NICU. And he was, he was growing and he was just doing, he was just really, really doing well. And then they moved him from the Foothills Hospital to Peter Lougheed. And at that stage, he was now, I think he got up to almost five pounds and he was starting to, so they start advancing him more on the teaching him how to breastfeed, right? So he was on my breast milk from almost day two, but now they're teaching him how to, you know, suckle on a soother and drink the milk. And he was advancing through that really well. And yeah, so then I spent a couple of weeks going into Peter Lougheed and getting to hold him and doing more of the feeding myself. And it was, it was, um, all the nurses and doctors kept, I had, a, I actually had a doctor say to me, this little one is on cruise control to getting home. And nurses say, cause he was due on New Year's Eve and we just wanted him home for Christmas. And I said, do you think we'll be able to get him home for Christmas? And they're like, with this little guy, yes, he's doing so good. And then I spent one day with, I remember it was like premature awareness day. And I spent the day with him and he was all of a sudden just a little col- colicky. And that wasn't like him to be colicky. But I thought, well, you know, he's just growing, I guess. And then, but we spent the day where I just couldn't get him settled. And then the next morning we woke up to a phone call from the doctor at 6 a.m. saying that they were just concerned with something going on. So they took him off his um, feeds and they started putting him on an antibiotic and they're sending him for an ultrasound that they were fearful that he might have gotten an infection. That was just very um, dangerous for premature babies. And then the (laughs) mom intuition kicked in and I knew it wasn't good, but we were hopeful. And after a few hours of being on that, they called me again and said that it looked like he was reacting well to the antibiotics. And then it just spiraled out of control. And how close were you to the hospital that he was in at this time? Yeah, I think it was about a half an hour drive to get to the hospital. I was in Airdrie, half an hour. So I remember the day that he got sick, the weather was really, it was this really gloomy, foggy day. And I remember waiting for the weather to get better before driving because I was scared, but it was just torture waiting for it to feel safe enough to drive to the hospital, but knowing that my baby wasn't doing good. And um, yeah. And, and then I finally got there and um, they said he, he was still doing okay at that point. And I remember I stayed until midnight holding him and um I, I just, I didn't feel like I didn't feel good. And I kept saying to the nurse, he's whimpering. This doesn't feel good and something's wrong. And she said, no, he's just happy to be in your arms. And I said, but he doesn't, my baby doesn't whimper like this normally. And she's like, everything, we're, you know, just basically tried to calm me down. And then the next morning I got a phone call that 
took a turn over the, in the night and they rushed him to the children's hospital. Mm. And how old was he at this point? How many days old when they brought him to the children's? 30 days. He was 30 days. So you were going back and forth for 30 days trying to take care of yourself, take care of the baby, just you and your partner trying to do it all because of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they take him to the children. So that was- And I knew children's hospital was a bad sign because I remember them saying that the children's hospital NICU is for very sick babies or babies that need surgeries. And so when they told me that they had to rush him to children's, I I knew that was not a good sign. And did they, did they have a diagnosis then, or did they know what, have any answers for you or just like, we need to get him there? Yeah. Um, I, they suspected it was this necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, it's just like an infection in the belly and, um, where it started for him. They didn't, he wasn't really showing the signs like some baby, like a lot of premature babies can get this and just with some antibiotics be fine. And it's, it's a little more dangerous for newborn babies that are two weeks or younger. And the fact that he was, or already a month old, you know, he, it, it should have, he should have, he should have had things going for him to protect from this. But after going to the children's hospital and talking to the doctors, Sometimes with that disease, it can come in really hard and fast and they're, they just, it gets away on them and their um, strategies they use for it. It's almost too late. And unfortunately that's what happened with my son. Mm. So 30 days and he's taken to the children's mm-hmm. and we know, as I mentioned in the intro, he lived 34 days. So Mm -hmm. what was that last four days like for you and your family? Torture. Absolute torture. Like, were you still hopeful at that time? He's in like the world's greatest care. You know, it could, you know, when babies are there, it's, it's because they need (laughs) intensive care, but there is the best doctors in the world. So were you still hopeful at this point or did you know, like this just isn't feeling good? Um, yeah. Um, I was hopeful because exactly what you said, everyone kept reassuring me is best doctors in the world, best place for him. He was in good hands. Um, even nurses said, you know, it can come in hard and fast and it can go away just as fast if we get the right treatment. Um, so of course I'm praying for that. Um, but the doctors were very, um, blunt with that. He was in critical condition and, um, unfortunately, for premature babies when it gets to that, you know, they're just underdeveloped. Right. And, um, I was hopeful because it felt wrong not to be, but my, my gut, it wasn't feeling good. Mm. 
nothing good. So it was very scary time. And it was this dance between their waiting to get him in to possibly do surgery. Um, but there's just so much going on to get him to there at that point and worried that his, you know, stomach might rupture and as it was traumatizing, right? And there's nothing you can do and your family isn't there, right? It's just you and, and your partner. And um, finally, they were kind of like last case scenario, let's try surgery. But they honestly didn't know if he would make it to the operating room. It was quite the scene to get him there. And I remember just thinking, please, 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 you know, something. And waiting for that surgery and was just, yeah, mortifying, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, unfortunately, when they called us, when the surgery was done, you know, everyone's worst case scenario going into this room with the doctors, I could tell the looks on their face. It wasn't good. And yeah, he just ended up with a very severe case of this disease and they weren't able to save him. Um, he was still alive though, but it would be up to us to decide when to end the care. And that was, yeah, everyone's worst nightmare. Oh, that just is so heartbreaking. Getting that news that, you know, no parent ever wants. It is the worst nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, engraved in my brain. (laughs) Yeah those moments that yeah change us change things when when you got that news and he was still alive at this point were then you able to bring in your family to meet him before you had to make that decision yeah so that was what what I'm forever grateful for is but my parents happened to be on the island at the time and Stefan's mom was on the island. So the hospital, which was so generous, flew them in for us. And um, my sister and my brother-in-law were in Okotoke, so they were able to come right away. And yeah, they flew everyone in and they, you know, helped keep them alive until then. But we knew that there was a chance that we could turn and they wouldn't live for that. But he, he held on. <laughs> So did you have to make the final decision as to when his last day would be, or did that happen naturally? Um, we had to decide. And um, when all the grandparents got there, the hospital <laughs> nurses, it was always supposed to be two people in the room for COVID protocol, but the nurses all turned their back and um, allowed my whole family to be in there with us. And we spent the afternoon taking turns holding him. I know it's got to be so heartbreaking, but how beautiful. Yeah. 
it's definitely not what you picture your um you know i remember watching my mom hold him and she was just looking at him so lovely and, and stefan's mom and here's the grandmother's just just calling him beautiful and just loving on him and i remember being so proud and then it would hit me this is them saying hello and goodbye and it just it seemed so unfair <laughs> but i'm thankful that they got to do that they got to meet him but it was it was very bittersweet yeah and then when we finally decided you know a decision no one ever wants to make um and you're never ready for it <laughs> you're just hoping that a miracle happens but um they were all in the room with us which um i couldn't imagine not having them with us as that support yeah <laughs> yeah that just is so heartbreaking but i just think <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> like just those thank goodness you know I know there's some doctors and nurses and they're put in like really hard situations right where it's like these protocols that um are supposed to be uh, in place and they have to follow these guidelines and rules but just like thank goodness that you were around the people who you know knew that the that's just the right thing to do and I know it's such a tragedy that everybody got to say hello and goodbye in the same breath right in the same at the same Mm -hmm. time and I just think it is so unfair Mm -hmm. that you know at this time in your life where a support group and having your family uh, around you to just hold on to you that you couldn't have that available to you. I mean, obviously they were in ways, but not in which, you know, should have been happening, being there by your side every day. And so, yeah. 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 (laughs) The uh, thing is too, is he, Leo had come in contact with a nurse who, has a positive for COVID. So on top of all, all on top of all of this, he was um supposed to be under isolation. And the poor little guy had two COVID tests. Oh. <laughs> really? He couldn't just escape the COVID. <laughs> he had to experience a COVID test. And so yeah, we were all under like the big isolation gowns and masks and shields with him. So so the fact they were supposed to be extra strict about the locking down. So I was very thankful that. Yes. <clears throat> so now, helped. now, now you're leaving the hospital again without mm-hmm. your baby and he's not coming home. Like how, mm-hmm what happens then? Like what happens with the grief and the, I mean, you said the trauma from, from everything, how do things, um, 
like, what is that path? Like that journey, like leaving Mm -hmm. now again without your son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when I left the nurse handed me a little box, which they give to everyone who baby dies and it has a butterfly on top and then it has a little crocheted bonnet and booties. And I remember just thinking, this is lovely, but I don't have a baby to put this on, you know, like the thought, I, I get it. But at the time it is just like, but I don't have a baby. <laughs> and, and then a brochure of um, grief supports. And I just thought, I'm supposed to leave with my baby, not a brochure of how to grieve him. And um, not only that, but I'd been um, getting up every three hours and pumping milk for him. So I don't know if anyone's breastfed, obviously who's listening, but I was very sore. <laughs> and here's my, my chest just screaming to feed a baby that's no longer alive. So we had a very quiet drive home in the car, holding on to my box of crochet slippers and grief pamphlets. And <laughs> Stefan drove me to Safeway so I get cabbage leaves to put on my sore chest. And we went home to, you know, I went up to stairs and closed the room to the ner- the door to the nursery. I had a nursery for him. And yeah. And that and it's just it's it's you're just at shock. It's just it doesn't even seem real, you know, that that just denial that it's happening. We had dinner as a family because I had we hadn't slept or eaten in days. And it just it just seemed unreal. What did that grief look like? Um, well, immediately it was just trauma, like just traumatic images in my mind. Um, yeah, very much just like denial at that point, just shock, right? Like just numb. Um, it's just sharp. I remember it being just so painful, so sharp. I remember um, one morning I got up and I stubbed my toe really hard. But I enjoyed the feeling of the physical pain because it numbed the emotional pain. And that, that was alarming. You know, it's just, you just, you don't know how you can move on. But yet, you know, you have a partner who's heartbroken and your family who's heartbroken. And so you just want to help them. <laughs> but, you know, it's something um, scary, scary. Luckily, I have an amazing family and support, you know, that they provided was incredible. I wouldn't have been able to get through it without them. But that's what I can't, you know, people need help at those times. They need someone to lean on and be there with them. And I'm so thankful I had that. Yes, that support system around you. Did you seek other ways? Like, did you open that grief pamphlet and, you know, seek out other supports as well? Yeah, I, I did right away. I went searching for anything and everything for um, help. I just knew I needed help. And um, 
what I most longed for was to talk to someone who'd been through something similar. I wanted to talk to another bereaved mom to tell me how to do this. How do I, how do you do this? How do you get through this? And um, luckily I had people reach out who had similar experiences that I didn't even realize that reached out to me and they were like, listen, you know, and they just talked me through it. And that, that meant the world to me. And also in the pamphlet, there was some, um, like a pregnancy and infant loss support center. I contacted them right away and they gave me a, um, a peer uh, support person. So another mother who lost a baby who called me, talked to me for hours. Um, yeah, there was a, a helpline you could text or call anytime someone to talk to. And a grief counselor from the Children's Hospital reached out to us right away. And what's amazing about the Children's Hospital is they give you counseling after losing a child for life, basically, as long as you need it. So we definitely grabbed on to any and all. So I just knew I needed a support network in that time. Yes. And so after talking and hearing the stories and connecting with other mothers who had lived through um, a similar experience as you, you know, not having their child, you realize that the support wasn't um, like was more limited for fathers. And I feel like it, it is kind of like, we don't go to the fathers, our minds. I don't think it always, I don't know. Like it's just to the mom, to the mom, how's the mom doing? How could the mom, but you know, sometimes I feel like that that's true. The fathers just maybe are expected to just mm-hmm. keep carrying on or carry, not carry the weight, but just that the focus isn't on them as much and they're just as much a part of it. So when you came to that realization with these other mothers that, how did that spark this? Um, yeah. <clears throat> this golf tournament, this Lionheart that you're currently doing? Yeah, well, what was the first thing that stuck out to me was I had um, one of my friends from high school, her dad reached out to me and said, 40 years ago, him and his wife lost two babies. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, over time, the pain will lessen. But my advice to you is grieve together, but also make sure you grieve separately because he spent so much of his energy making sure that his wife was okay, that it prolonged the intensity of his grief. And I was, uh, that really stuck with me. And then um, I was noticing in the early days, um, there was a lot of support coming in for me. And, um, you know, I had these secret Santa people dropping gifts off at my place every single day. And, And just friends, like, would call me more and reach out to me more. And yeah, there was always asking like, you know, was, how are you doing? And then some would ask about Steph and some wouldn't, right? And he was suffering obviously just as hard. And then um, he wasn't getting the same people reaching out to him as much as I was, right? It just wasn't happening as much. 
And he really wanted someone to talk to, a friend to talk to. And my, my dad and my brother-in-law and a couple of people really helped him, but it wasn't the same, right? And then when I got into a, a, a grief group with um, six other couples through the children's hospital, um, just talking to some of the other moms, they said the same thing, that they joined hoping that their partner or husband would find a connection with someone who could you know, they could peer up with to kind of help them through it. Cause a lot of them said the same, their friends just don't really know how to support them in this. And then it just kind of dawned on me that there was a gap in that area needing support. And that I knew I wanted to create a legacy for my child. I like, his life was not going to be just 34 days. Like he was going to have a legacy. And so then I thought, well, isn't this fitting? that he was named after strong men, you know, my, my, my father, my grandfather, that his legacy could be helping other men. And luckily the other women on the grief group um, jumped on board with my crazy idea. (laughs) This uh, golf tournament. And it, it was part of it was just so that we could keep in touch and, keep a connection and have a, a something to do, but it kind of turned into more than what we even imagined it could. Yes. Your crazy, brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is brilliant. And I think, you know, even though it's bringing people together who have been through heart-wrenching circumstances, it still is bringing people together, you know, for a laugh or to, create new memories or talk about the memories and, and be there and continue on. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. yes. And so it's, it's, it's been a really good outlet and, and there's healing and helping, you know, Um, just knowing that this will help others in that time of turmoil is just kind of helps heal our broken hearts. Right. His legacy will live on. And that is so beautiful that he's going to be yeah, named after these strong men that are going to help other men because, you know, there are strong men out there, but they absolutely still need the same outlets that we do. And they are going through the same um, internal, um, like turmoil that we Mm -hmm. go through, but like the outlets maybe aren't there as available. And like you said, like some people or friends might, if you haven't been through it, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just don't know how to be there and what it looks like and how it feels. And so creating this space where, other men can come together and have each other and they have a shared understanding of what it actually truly feels like that nobody else could understand unless they've been through it. I mean, you Mm -hmm. have care and compassion and, you know, you never want to put yourself in that situation and can imagine how it might feel. But I feel like unless you go through something like that, you really don't 
fully understand. So I think that is so incredible how you're bringing these men together and how you're, um, hosting this, this golf tournament where you'll raise funds, where fathers will be able to get the access to resources that they need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) It feels really, really good. And the first golf tournament will be, it's just a few short days away. Yeah. September 11th. It's coming up fast and we're very excited. We, it actually sold out. We were, we were hoping we'd get it half full. We sold out. And so it's going to be a big day, but it's going to be a really beautiful day. Yes. So how is today? Um, well, like what learning through grief, I, you know, just not really understanding what it is, you know, I've grieved other people, but never anything so, so close to me. Um, it's not linear, right? You, you, you can have a few good days and then I'll feel like you're back to day one again. You know, it's all over the map, you know, you're happy, sad, mad, <laughs> denial shock can take place all in one day and so um right right now it's really hard um just because it's just this constant um wondering well I guess he would have been about nine months right now what you know would he be moving around like crazy you know like all that stuff is just um it just weighs on you every single day And so I definitely start to feel a little better than in the early days, but the, when you kind of get a glimpse of joy, um, guilt seems to creep in just as fast and they're linked pretty closely together. So, um, yeah, it's just every day. It's still a push to get through. (laughs) It's still, still, there's still denial. Like I can't believe this is, this is my life, you know, but even though I filled it with, with some amazing things, with the golf tournament, it's, you're just still, it's still really sad because I'm happy I'm creating a legacy, but I just wish it could have been different. <laughs> yes. Yes. You are doing a beautiful thing, but it is in because the loss of your precious little boy. Yeah. Your story just like pulls on every single heartstring. Yeah. Yeah. What you're doing is so incredible. And I'm really happy that you've reached out for that support and that you found your people and that you have such an incredible family and that you are helping do the same for the men out there that are going through the exact same thing. And yeah, I think you're definitely going to change the course for so many people, men and women, mothers and fathers that need a place to um, go to for that. So yeah, thank you for what you are doing. It's just incredible. 
Thank you. Yeah, it, it feels feels right. Feels good. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your little <gasps> Leo <gasps> with all of us. Yes. I love sharing him. So anyone who ever wants to ask me about him, I'll more than happy to share. <laughs> well, what what is your favorite memory that you have together? you and little Leo? I guess it was just, it was, I'd always come every day in in the NICU and hold him for as long as I could, hours and hours. And, um, and then when it was time to go, you get him like, do his diaper and wrap him back up and put him back in his bed. And he'd be asleep. And it was like, he knew every time when I was wanting to leave, because then I'd look over and I'd see his eyes open. (laughs) 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 He he knew I wanted to leave. And he's like, you're not leaving. I'm awake. Yeah. I'm going to get back here. (laughs) Get back here. Yeah. Because he knew. So then I was like, ah, go over there. And (laughs) okay. (laughs) And um, yeah, he just, he knew when I was trying to sneak away. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it was just, I'll always cherish those times. Oh, I love that. Yeah, they just know. Yeah. I'm going to get back <laughs> here. Okay, well, thank you again. I'm going to link if anybody wants to donate to the Lionheart Golf tournament you can donate there any funds i'm going to put kyla's information down in the show notes so if you know someone who is grieving and needs support or if you need a place or someone to reach out to um, that information will be down there so thank you again i truly appreciate you being on here and absolutely loved learning about your little beautiful baby yes thank you for letting me share thank you for joining me on today's episode of all things relatable if you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it please pass it along also if this episode resonated with you i would love for you to rate review and subscribe